0: FMC Fast Chat takes you inside the news so you can be in the know in 30 minutes. Hosted by Fair Media Council CEO and Executive Director Jackie Clement, Fast Chat features notables in news, media, and business.
1: Sit back and learn how some of Long Island's biggest stories turned into news headlines, as told by the journalist who covered them. I'm Jackie Clement, CEO and Executive Director of the FAIR Media Council. This discussion was part of FMC's annual event, the news conference, Real and Powerful. Featured in this session are Michael Daljudis, news photojournalist and editor, WNBC New York, Jennifer McLogan, Long Island reporter, CBS New York, Terry Sheridan, Senior Director of News and Education, WSHU Public Radio, and Bob Keeler. Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, formerly with Newsday, and now retired. Moderating is Chris Wright of Protivity Consulting and a member of the Fair Media Council Board of Directors. Now take a listen as Bob Keeler opens this session telling of one of his more memorable stories.
2: One other uh, Long Island story that I that people will be familiar with is the Amityville horror. So Ronald DeFeo murdered his. Uh, parents and four siblings, and uh, many years later, uh, I interviewed him at Attica. That was my third time at Attica. The first time was on the day of the of the of the uh, state troopers firing into the facility and killing forty three people. And later, I interviewed David Berkowitz, the serial killer who was known as the Son of Sam. But I interviewed DeFeo because it, it became known that he wanted to tell a different story. Uh, He told a different story, I didn't really believe it, but I I wrote a story about it in the paper. And in in later times, uh, I actually was visiting someone in prison and I got up to go to the uh, uh, vending machines and I bumped into the guy behind me. Turned out it was Ronald DeFeo and I was a little nervous because I knew he didn't like the story I wrote about him. Anyway, uh, DeFeo died last year and kind of all brought it back for me. Uh, One last thing, this was not, a specifically Long Island story, but it's a story that meant a lot to me because I certainly would not have gotten to Rome without it. And I wouldn't have gotten to sit right next to the Pope and the chief rabbi of Rome. So it was the first ever Yom HaShoah concert, the Holocaust Memorial Concert in 1994. And Newsday uh, okay. decided that they wanted me to cover it. And so I went, uh, happily for me, I went with Father Tom Hartman uh, you remember Father Tom Hartman from the uh, the God Squad. Um, and Father Tom Hartman uh, and I flew out on the plane together. And uh, when we got there, some little guy picked us up at the airport, took us right to the Vatican because he was wanting Tom Horton, Hartman to make a documentary about Padre Pio. Anyway, when I got there, Roger Tillis of the Tillis Center handed me my tickets. And, uh, you know, that was what enabled me to be there. Roger was the main fundraiser for that concert. So that was the sort of Long Island angles on wow. international story that, you know, meant a lot to me to cover. Okay, I think I should shut up now.
0: It sounds like uh, Bob, just Father Tom was, uh, before he was uh, on television, the youth group leader at the parish uh, to which I and others went uh, as teenagers.
2: Ah, a good, wow. good
0: man going back to the 70s. So, yeah,
2: he was a very know. good guy. Yeah. Very good yeah. guy. And uh, I remember he slept like a baby on that plane. I could never sleep on a plane. Wow. He was completely uh, at home with himself.
0: There are people who can't sleep on a plane and people who can't stay awake. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the can't stay awake side. And hopefully your your time with DeFeo and Berkowitz was supervised.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Berkowitz, uh, one funny story about Berkowitz. So I'm sitting there with reporters from the AP and the New York Times and uh, I, we asked him, why why did you want to give us this interview? Why did you want to talk to us? He wanted to say that it wasn't a dog who told him to kill people. Uh, so he said, because you're the respectable tabloids. And I said to myself, oh, my God, the guy from the Times want, might want to kill himself for being called a tabloid. So yeah. later when I wrote a, a worst-selling book about the history of Newsday, and we were casting around for title, we came up with Newsday, the history of the respectable tabloid.
0: Isn't that an oxymoronic term? Yeah. You be, is, can, you be, yeah. you, can you be both?
2: Yeah. Well, there was a guy at the Daily News who used to call Newsday a tabloid in a tutu, because we were tabloid in shape, but not in spirit. We didn't have the kind of gutsy headlines and stuff that the Daily News and the Post do.
0: So somewhere I still have my master carrier sweatshirt from 1980. So Okay. <laughs> You know?
2: Thank you for that. Thank uh, you for the service. Thank you for your service, as they
0: say. Mr. Bo- Mr. Bordash was the Director of Circulation, if I recall. Vinny Bordash, yeah.
2: Bordash, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's, that's great, Bob. Thank you. And so uh, you covered a, a bit of touching, a bit of surprising, and certainly some pretty pretty big stories. Um, Maybe, Terry, from a radio perspective, before and we'll ask Michael and Jennifer on, on the television perspective, but anything you've covered, either in your current or, pres- or prior, uh, prior roles? Well,
3: I mean... Uh, I'm speaking now in capacity as an editor and a newsroom leader, sure. you know, that I wasn't personally, you know, covering stories, but I was guiding stories. One of the things that we did this year was investigations into the Nassau County Police Department for misconduct. And a lot of it was data driven. My reporter, Charles Lane, was just, you know, foiling, 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 looking at data sets, et cetera. But what made the story special was something that something Bob stepped on or touched on was that the stories became powerful when we spoke to people who were directly affected by anything that happened, whether it was a mis, uh, a misguided uh, internal affairs uh, investigation, whether it was someone who was unfairly arrested, whether it was someone who suffered worse at the hands of the police. Yeah. So, again, it's yes, the story. We have to get the data. We have to get that right. But in order to make it more powerful, in order to make it that people want to to read it or care about it so that they don't get the condition called MIGO, which is my eyes glaze over, you want to get someone who was affected to tell their story. So, you know, that was one of the things that we did this year. And then I think this year, too, the Thomas Valva case. um, that, yes, it was a horrible crime, but I think the thing that got reporters and editors is when you're looking at what is happening or what, what happened and hearing about it, and you have to have a heart of stone not to be affected by it in some way, shape, or form. So it's those stories that we, we try to do that, you know, one, factually based, heavily reported, but we're looking for um, a human hook. One of the stories, I guess, in my career, and this was about 20 years ago, there was a horrible fire in uh, out in Coney Island, and it was just um, speaking to a witness, and, and someone just said, you know, they were screaming from the fourth floor, and then all of a sudden the screaming stopped, and you knew right away what what he was trying to say. But again, it's that human touch that, that makes the stories more powerful.
4: Sure, I'd like to step in also. Um, sure, yeah. Thanks for having us. I'm trying to turn off my morning meeting unsuccessfully. I'll get that off in a second here. Sorry, off to the left. And Terry and I, of course, in in inner circle together, doing our thing. Um, Anyway, welcome to everybody here watching and listening, and thanks for having us. Um, When I first came back from network news to local news, excuse me, um, I... uh, I had been back for a couple of weeks when uh, the LIRR massacre occurred. And I happened to live in Garden City. I was a new transplant here with my husband and three young children. And um, my husband was on the phone. um, And in those days, we had no cell phones. We had no way of, we had a beeper maybe, but that's about it. And uh, suddenly there's a call waiting kind of thing and the message comes in please pick up the phone it was an editor at CBS have is there a mass shooting in your community and they put me on the phone I'm looking around no I mean what are you talking about the railroad and I said well it's down the street I don't see anything go take a look we have someone on the train from CBS that says there's the mass shooting so that was my initiation just walking down the street into this unbelievable kind of a bloodbath and as I'm getting there all the ambulances are arriving and um, I walked back to the house to get some kind of a little camcorder and I stood there just shooting in a delirious fashion um, filled with horror and sadness at what was evolving around us and our cameraman Nick Fisher then arrived to be the first one on the scene and we I believe interrupted uh, the Dan Rather evening news and just started going live for the rest of the night, finding out that some of my neighbors, new neighbors and um, people in our community, obviously so affected. Um, I followed that story for weeks through the the trials and then um, Colin Ferguson being his own uh, attorney. Uh, going into the jail to try to interview him. And at one point, sitting there to interview Colin Ferguson uh, in the jail, and I looked off to the right, and there was Joel Rifkin and his mother having also a talk, you know, right by here. And, And Joel Rifkin was the serial killer that had been murdering all the women. So it was very ironic that that was happening at the same time. Following the trial, of course, Carolyn McCarthy... Um, evolves and becomes, uh, runs for Congress and wins. And we were on the plane with her when she went to Washington, days of old, uh, to be sworn in, similar to what George Santos is, uh, what, what, why we're following George Santos today, a different age then. And there was cooperation, respect, and uh, both sides of the aisle getting um, autographs from carolyn mccarthy at that point um, it just shows how a story will have legs um, a couple of other stories that w- reminded us of um, the importance of our desk um, one night we got a call from a woman who was very grief stricken and crying to the desk please send a reporter to my house because my husband my ex-husband has murdered my child and we're what is going on and We got there, cameraman and I, and it was um, Justina Zubko-Valva, and we went in to speak to her, and she said, my husband is a police officer. I know he's guilty of this, and we couldn't air that because, first of all, he had not been arrested, and right then, the news came out that the child was injured and had died of natural causes, so we had to hold on to that interview, and then three days later, he was arrested and then we got to, to play that and follow that beginning from soup to nuts all the way through. And we were there um, two months ago when the father was found guilty um, and the jury so upset and speaking to us afterward. Um, one other story and then I'll let someone else take over that We happened to be in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time. We were in Quag and got word that something strange had happened on the horizon, and people were calling out. um, We think a plane's gone down, and it was TWA Flight 800. So my crew and I rushed to Marich's, which is where they sent us originally. Um, that night and we just reported all through the night of the plane. It was just such a horrible, horrible, sad situation. And then we were on Dune Road at the end by the uh, Coast Guard station for almost six weeks, night and day reporting that story. And then of course, Nelson DeMille had his famous book on, was it terrorism? So that story so continues to today also.
0: Great. Jennifer, you have uh, you remind me on that, uh... The Maryland Avenue massacre, I think, redefines Pearl Harbor Day for Long Islanders. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's another yes. December seventh event, and I, I have some personal friends who were uh, EMTs on the scene that day. You know, doing God's work with the with the wounded, and uh, it's always uh, important to reach out, kind of reach out to them on on how they're doing on on that day. It's it, it is a it is a a, a pretty a seminal event for for that community.
4: Yes, and um, one of the neighbors um, uh, was Japanese American, and he told me later he was wounded, but not gravely, that he thought that he was being attacked because of his ethnicity. And um, just a reminder of, of that day, it was a special day because we went to Farmingdale Airport to do the flyover with the old timers in the flight. So to drop the roses at the Statue of Liberty, my crew and I were in an old plane, and it lost its altimeter or something, and we had to make an emergency landing in New Jersey, and then I remember getting driven all the way back to Long Island, and then getting home, and then having this happen a couple hours later. It was a full horrible day.
0: And I think the Valva case that two of you have mentioned now as well, that, that resonates, and particularly, you know, for for those of us who have autistic children in the family too, you know, it, it does, it, it it touches a lot of nerves, but I think provides a lot of focus to more than the issue at hand. It, it's a multi-issue, it's a multi-issue tragedy, crime, horror, right? And, uh, and I think uh, it, it it got the coverage it deserved in my view, not that I'm supposed to opine in this role, but I just did. <laughs> you know? right. And and Michael, Mike, I didn't wanna, Uh, to to move on to you as well. I know you've you've got some some views and some stories to to reflect on as well.
5: Well, it's funny, Jen, that you would uh, mention um, the Maryland uh, LIRR massacre because I was out in San Francisco. I've been doing this for now it's 38 years. Um, I had been at News 12 for seven or eight years and moved out to San Francisco in um, the early 90s Um, and uh, the day that happened, I was in a, um, a, the Bay Bridge in San Francisco had a major, major um, spill. And you want to talk about something that um, uh, the uh, the city was at a standstill. I mean, it was huge it, and, and it was huge national news because it literally brought the city to its knees and so I'm sitting in traffic, trying to get from one place to another. I'm I'm working I'm uh, working for KTVU, um, uh, the Fox affiliate in San Francisco, and trying to get from one place to another. And and all of a sudden, later in the afternoon, and granted it's three hours difference, I hear about the story, and I'm like, oh, and immediately I I think of of um, the crews that I worked with, and what was going on in their heads and, and what they were dealing with. And I, you know, I I, I tried to get to a phone and, uh, eventually and find out what was going on. I think I talked to Doug Geed, my buddy, um, and uh, it was a uh, an unbelievable story that I wasn't a part of, um, but I know how big that uh, obviously was. I eventually got back to New York within... A year or so, and was part of the trial. So I was, you know, I was a part of of it in the long run. But I know that day, the adrenaline and, and what's going through your minds and going through newsrooms and how to attack this type of uh, story is is just um, it's incredible. Um, it's funny because I I, um, I was looking at some of the stories I've covered over the years, um, and you know we're talking about uh, we're talking about uh, uh, Flight 800, I go as far back as uh, Avianca in uh, 1990, um, that, that horrible plane crash that was literally in the backyard of News 12, uh, the Badafuoco situation. Um, but it's it's uh, funny that um, one of the big stories I had uh, been a part of was the sunrise fire, wildfires. Um, I happened to be covering the East End that day. Um, I usually worked with Doug Geed. Um, he was anchoring um, in uh, the, the, in the main station, and I was out there with another reporter, and we were wrapping up our day, uh, heading back to the state uh, act- back to our bureau. And um, uh, I don't know if you guys remember. Maybe a week or so prior, there were some pretty bad wildfires up in uh, I think it was Rocky Point Miller Place, and when we went to uh, go check this out. I saw it off in the distance. I'm like, I don't think we're heading back to the Bureau. Let's go, let's go check this out. Um, we ran into some firefighters that were starting to, um, realize how big this was starting to become. They had said to me, this is making the Rocky Point, um, wildfires, um, look like, you know, nothing. And, that scared the crap out of me, um, scared both of us. Um, and so we, back then, the only way we could send anything was from some, either a, a live truck, which I did not have, or, um, or back in the Bureau, we were able to feed stuff back. Um, but the video that I was shooting at that time wasn't, I, I couldn't get it back to the station. We were maybe 10 minutes from the Bureau. I make my way back, and I shot as I shot extra, with the thought that this could be bigger than just a small wild, uh, a small um, uh, fire. So I get back there, and I never make calls like this. I never stick my neck out in this type of situation. I, you know, have a job to do, and I do it. But I said to the powers that be, including Pat Dolan. Uh, um, I said, this, I'm sending back a lot of video because I think this might be something you're going to be covering for a while. And um, uh, Pat and others said that was probably one of the best calls uh, we've made because um, when things started heating up, they, sound, uh, they wound up sending um, trucks, every live truck they possibly had started heading out. And uh, we met up with different trucks. Whatever the bottom line was, it became one of the biggest uh, wildfires we've ever covered um, uh, here on Long Island. Um, but it's it's funny. I was talking with Jackie before this, Jackie Clement, and I said uh, I was I was going through a list of different stories that uh, you know, Richard Angelo, Angel of Death, all these types of stories, uh, but the one that hits me the most is not a huge um, uh, event. It's something we covered throughout the years at News 12 um, that after a couple of years, I, I had said to Pat Dolan, I said, hey, Pat, it, is this okay that we're you know going to continue to cover this year after year? And he said, I truly believe, and, and uh, it sticks with me for Forever, he said, I truly believe this story, and I'll tell you in a second, uh, is woven into the fabric of our station. And it's um, it's called the Ride for Life. Uh, I don't know if you guys uh, are familiar with it. It was um, uh, Chris Pendergast. Um, he had ALS. Um, uh, Greg Sergal had asked me, hey, wh- why don't we uh, go cover the story? Uh, you know, i think it, it could be something, um, you know, heartfelt, and, uh, and this man um, was told he had anywhere from two to three years to live. He wound up, we want to talk about perseverance, um, he wound up living for um, another 28 years with the disease, um, and he did so much, millions and millions of dollars uh, were, were raised <coughs> Through the years of this ride for life, and it really is something that uh, uh, will always be near and dear to me. So, um, yeah, I don't want to take up too much time, you know.
0: But um, Michael and and, and maybe uh, Jennifer as well. Was that before, with the the, the wildfire? I, I one thing I remember is that the first time I'd heard the term stump jumper,
5: oh, I think yes. that's now.
0: That's now the name of a type of fire truck that's associated yeah. with Long Island response to the wildfire, right? The
4: stump the, jumper.
5: That, uh, it's funny you yeah. should say that, Chris. I, I got onto a stump jumper uh, that, that next morning and they were battling it and battling it. I, it's so funny you should mention this because I get on this and I, you know, they, they garb me up. I'm with a reporter. Uh, we're, we're out in the middle of it. And we got pretty close. I mean, so close that um, I had some, some embers had come and, and burnt my, my um, part of my shirt that wasn't closed with the jacket. And so I, we get back and we do a live shot. And I know my mother at the time is watching. And my reporter said, Oh, and my photographer, Mike Del Judas, was burned while we were out there. And I'm like, oh my goodness. As soon as we were done, I immediately called my mom because I knew she would be like, Are you okay? Oh my goodness. That's how close these stump jumpers got to the fires. And I don't know if it's careless that we went out with them. I, uh, you know, we got amazing video and we got. It, it was something where we felt it was necessary to show what these firefighters were doing and how hard they were working and battling this fire. So, so yes, uh, the sump jumper was something that um, was a big part of uh, battling that
0: fire. And is that why <laughs> or because or after? You know, I, I worked in Melville for 20 years and still passed by there a lot. There was there was a sort of a gas station on the corner of Timeline and, and uh, 110 that would... Um, that had all these all these live trucks almost situated for a number of news organizations had live trucks parked at this gas station i guess ready to deploy was was is is the is that the way people did they learn from long island wildfires and add those there or were those always kind of situated? well it is a good location no that's
4: where we park
5: yes yeah. we I mean, we are we, still parked there at that so gas
4: station or they park at the um at their houses
5: we but still it's, have it's, that It's It's almost like so. Is there a ready go? go,
0: Is there there a ready go playbook for all hell's breaking loose, and I need to be on the scene? You know, Michael, you had to get out to a wildfire. Jennifer, you happen to be able to walk up the street or a few blocks over to Maryland Avenue. What? How do you? And this is for everybody. How do you? um, How do you scramble to the scene when when it's you know you're in the middle of the fire or the immediate aftermath of a of a mass murder like mass murder? What? How do you? What's is there a checklist or is it like what's the what are the steps that get you from I just heard about this to reporting either live or writing the story?
4: Well, I just think that um, it's completely different now. I mean, we can go live anywhere in this kitchen with like a little tiny whatever. Um, Back then, and Mike Del Judas explained this, you have to be with the crew. You, you, could, you could go off separately or meet in your own cars, but you have to be together to, to shoot the video to try to get the story on the air. We were with the Quag uh, Fire Department then with their stump jumper. And we knew some of the firefighters they're going through, but we couldn't get the video on the air. We had to drive to a feed point in Manorville. Remember that hill, Mike? Drive the yes. live truck all the way up to this hill, raise the mast, and then yep. they could see you in New York City. So Mm -hmm. we would lose like 45 minutes. Um, And and I remember people at the Fair Media Council were saying, why are you dropping off the air suddenly? We'd say, because you have to drive to the speed point (laughs) and feed it in and then do a live shot. Over my shoulder is the smoke. We were just, why aren't you standing in the smoke? Because you couldn't get a signal out. And it's very frustrating. Well, now there's live view, and Mike can explain how now we can go live anywhere. But back then, you were tethered to this truck and microwave. Oh, well, and
5: know. from why the I, I'm sorry, just very quickly, that's why I was so lucky in the sense that our bureau, we had a bureau that I could actually feed video out of, was only about five, 10 minutes away. Um, we didn't have to go to uh, that, the hill. Um, which was something we did before the Bureau all the time. So, yes, I'm sorry, Terry.
3: No, I was going to say now, from a radio point of view, it was just get there any way you can, as fast as you can. And then while you're getting to a scene, you're trying to figure out the different logistics, how to enter it. I mean, when you don't, I was driving a personal car. So even though I had NYP plates, I didn't have any real identification besides my credential to get into a scene. So a lot of times, all right, how do I get there? How do I negotiate with the police officer who is guarding the scene to get access? Uh, where should my car be pointed out? And then early on, it was like, where can I get a cell signal You know, mm-hmm. to do live reports? So at first, it's just get there, get to the area. And then once you're there, figure out some logistics so that you can get into the scene and start
2: reporting. This is making me feel a little—I uh, don't know—nervous or whatever. Because uh, you know, my technology was a notepad, and uh, so we didn't. The thing about Newsday was it was, a, it was a PM newspaper for most of the time. My earlier years at Newsday, so the presses didn't begin to run until the following morning. So that gave us a lot of time. I mean, you had to get to a scene if it was something, some kind of breaking story. But it gave you the opportunity to spend time doing further reporting and being able to, uh, you know, get the story as as right as you can get it. So in that sense, I was glad I was in that line of work because I, I have a very obsessive uh, personality. And if I had to be in TV or radio journalism where I had to worry about the masts and uh, the broadcast place and where we park our truck and how we get there in time, I probably would have ended up in in a private suite at Pilgrim Psychiatric Center. (laughs) I'm I'm just happy that I I was in the newspaper business and I had the opportunity to, I used to enjoy when I was the Albany Bureau Chief uh, next door to the New York Times. So I had to compete with the New York Times every day. They were a morning newspaper. So, you know, when nothing happens in Albany before about eight o'clock at night. So eight o'clock at night, they're just revving up. So the Times has to run an early edition story saying, the legislature is thinking about beginning to contemplate maybe later on doing something. That would be their first edition story. Their second edition story was the legislature moved a little bit further closer to the, meanwhile, I'm sitting there all night gathering stuff. So, you know, slow and steady wins the race is, is what I like to think about in terms of journalism, being able to uh, spend the extra time. One last thing I wanted to comment on something that Jen said about uh, about TW800. When that happened, I happened to be in Italy. My, we had flown over, I Newsday sent me to, to write uh, about Assisi. Um, and uh, so I'd flown over, my daughter just graduated from college, I took her on, you know, Newsday paid for me, I paid for my daughter. So I went to, to, to France and then on to, to Italy. And I learned about the TWA 800 flight. Yeah. What happened in the interim was people knew that I was going, that we were going to France and we were taking a, a flight that had gone around the same time, you know, a day or so earlier. So people were calling my wife and just saying, "Uh, how's Bob? You know, in their their mind, they're wondering if I'm at the bottom of the ocean. Anyway, I learned about this in Italy. So I called Newsday uh, because my friend, Matt Cox, uh, after the closing of New York Newsday, he ended up on on the copy desk, which is, you know, not a great place for him to be as a reporter. So I called Newsday and said, you know, he wrote a book about the Lockerbie case and you should have him on the team to cover this TWA 800 flight uh, disaster and they had already begun to think of that in that terms and Matt did get on that team and Newsday won a Pulitzer uh, for their coverage of that event so Mm -hmm. that's what I think of when I think of TWA 800 being on on the other side of the pond.
0: you mentioned lockerbie it used to be old news right but i, I recall i think it was right before christmas there was um it actually finally taken a suspect into custody right right i mean <laughs> that's 34 35 years ago and they're they've they've just now cracked one of the cases that that, that seems like it, it was a minor story i guess but uh, there was a lot of, there were a number of long islanders on that plane if i recall correctly too and mm. cuz the point of origin so uh, when you're when you're thinking about, and we, we covered kind of how do you deal with the breaking news and the, and the scramble, I assume if you're fortunate enough to be in a car with somebody else driving, you're probably actively writing or reporting or preparing uh, en route so that you hop out of the car. It's not like it is in the movies where they hop out of the car and they're live, right? I'm sure there's there's steps in between. Um, but when it's not breaking news, i'm I'm wondering if any of you can reflect on without revealing sources, but whether whether you know with some of the big stories you've covered, um, were, were there, is there, you know, one where it was sort of a good source where, where you, you felt like you were served well by a, you know, a tip or a source or a, or a call that that, that got you, you know, I think thinking Bob, you know, you, 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 mentioned you got the call to you wouldn't ordinarily have gone to Bayshore at four in the morning to see about how long the line at DSS was. Um, are there any, are there any stories where the, you know, there's, you have, you have, still have a connection to either the source of the story or the people involved, you know, to this day, or whether whether there's any in the ongoing uh, relationships like that. Again, I'm I, not did sure. have a,
4: I did have a tip from someone within the Roslyn School District that something bad was going on with money management. <laughs> and that led us into the Roslyn embezzlement story. And we stayed yeah, on yeah. that for several weeks. But if it weren't for not that source, I would have just been following everybody else.
0: Uh, became and became a became a movie, right? Hugh Jackman, oh, yeah. yeah. But by that the way, the I'm not sure that was an actor that looked a lot like the character. Just I so was going to
2: say that was the weirdest piece of casting I ever saw. Yeah. Right, I,
0: <laughs>
3: I, that, I knew that was Frank
2: Tesone. Frank Tessone who was the guy who was who was doing the embezzling, I knew him when he was the president of the Dickens Fellowship. My wife and I used to go into Manhattan on Charles Dickens's birthday and at Christmas time. And this group of old fuddy duddies like myself, who was interested in Charles Dickens, would you know, would gather, and he became That's the president true. of it. And I thought he was so boring that dust came out of his mouth when he spoke. And you know, there's no way in the world I would have ever imagined him being at the heart of an embezzlement scandal or being played by you Jackman. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of casting is that? Who who would who should play you, Jen, in that in that film? If they had <laughs> thrown you That's in sweet. there.
4: Um, can you imagine because he's about five feet tall and Hugh Jackman is about six foot eight or something it's a completely different situation yeah
0: Yeah. you you know in Roslyn there was a a lingering after effect in the business community that went on for some years the the audit firm and I forget their name and wouldn't mention them if I knew it um, that audited Roslyn apparently audited you know of the 125 school districts on Long Island which is a whole nother story um, maybe half or many many and every one of those uh, school districts between whenever that was and June 30th of the following year had to get a new auditor, right? And so, it, you know, you wouldn't have thought that it would have put the accounting industry into a bit of a, of a, of a stir, but that's, that's uh, 100, you know, 100 or so school districts, maybe, maybe 70 of them needed to have their books looked at just in case, right? It, it, the, the, the knock-on <laughs> effect was, well, let's make sure we don't have that too.
4: And then of course, we have to have our books looked at with Mr. Mangano and Mr. Spoda.
2: It's
0: pretty ironic. I serve as a volunteer on the NASA Interim Finance Authority. I'm familiar
2: with the latter, with the the former case. I have to plead uh, guilty to being an unindicted co-conspirator in this situation because I wrote the Newsday uh, endorsement editorial endorsing Tom Spoda when he first ran. And we, you know we were not too happy with jimmy caddison his predecessor so mm-hmm. well, i remember rich schaefer the democratic leader accompanying Spoda into the newsday offices Spoda had been a republican turned democrat we were always a little nervous about him because he uh you know he, he seemed too close to the cops he defended cops a lot you know so then you know what happened happened uh but And then Steve, if you remember, Steve Ballone, the county executive, showed up outside Spoda's office, kind of like Martin Luther with the 95 theses and criticizing him. But I, you know, I recall that Steve Ballone, I also wrote the endorsement editorial for Steve Ballone when he first ran for county executive, mostly because of uh, his treatment of Wyandanch. He was very concerned about Wyandanch, and we thought that was good. But he comes into a meeting of us, uh, reporters, editors, and I was representing the editorial board and he announced that he was going to make Jimmy Burke his uh, chief of department. Now, by that time I had heard from this former New York City uh, detective a lot about Jimmy Burke, including his hobbies uh, and his proclivities. So I didn't mention that in the meeting, but I did say to Steve Ballone, Steve, don't you think it's weird management to be appointing the chief of department, the highest uniformed officer before you appoint the police commissioner, who was his boss? And Steve said, whoever the police commissioner turns out to be, he's going to have to follow Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Burke's policing ideas. Uh, and of course, Jimmy Burke's policing ideas turned out to be pretty bad, like beating up uh uh suspects in the in a precinct. Uh by the way, let me just put in a, a little bit of a plug here for a book about this: Jimmy the King by Gus Garcia Roberts. Mm-hmm. It's a book about this whole affair and uh it's very well done, just massively reported. Uh, and it's well worth the read because it gives you a sense of the corruption that went on in the Suffolk County Police Department and the way in which Spoda and others covered for Jimmy Burke, who was a nasty character and still is a nasty character. Well, I'm, very, I'm
4: very interested in that. Yeah, and um, the Nelson DeMille too, um, with the maze, uh, obviously fictionalized, but that's pretty horrifying also.
0: And wasn't Bob, this is not a conspiracy theory, but I I mean, I'll admit I'm an accounting major, I was an accounting major with a minor in history, and I I do memorize things that would be jeopardy categories that nobody would care about. But in in this instance, wasn't Jimmy Burke as a youngster also on the scene in the Cordero Pius case?
2: Yeah, he was. That's how he and uh, Tom Sporte got to know each other. The Suffolk County cop, uh, you know, who's uh, calling me. The reason he was calling me a uh, Nassau County, uh, New York City cop who kept calling me about this stuff, it was because his son-in-law, who had been a Suffolk County cop, was convicted of helping some uh, burglary ring. And this New York City detective held it against Suffolk County cops and the DA's office that uh, that they did that to his son-in-law. So that's why he started feeding me stuff about Jimmy Burke. And he had some outrageous theories about Burke and the, and the pious Kelly. But that's how they first got to know each other because Jimmy Burke lived in that neck of the woods and cooperated, uh, gave some testimony uh, to the investigation. It's all in, in Gus Garcia Roberts' book, which is really a good book.
0: You know, and these are all, uh, I, we can't talk about Long Island and miss the story that everyone's talking about. We talked about a number of stories that are Long Island, uh, you know. Avianca Flight 800, uh, the Maryland Avenue massacre, the Amityville horror—they're all Long Island-based stories that were really national news. Uh, how about my new congressman? Oh. Um, I, 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 they redistricted me, right? And I thought, wow, I'm finally gonna—and no, <laughs> here we are. I'm a, I'm a mile north of the southern state, right? And so, um, any any um, any views all, from all, I would, I would appreciate on on whether you think this will will or has or should you know help support the idea that local news needs to be local and really probing and, 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 and insightful. And I'll ask, this is a question for everybody, uh, starting with whoever's mics off first. So.
2: Well, you know, Newsday is getting blamed for this, so I feel like I should speak about it. Um, there were several stories about this. One was in The Nation and another was in The Washington Post. The story in The Nation sort of credited Mark Chisano, who's a member of the Newsday editorial board and a very good guy, for talking about... Uh, this stuff before the election uh there was there was a lot of criticism of of the new york times and i'm always happy to hear criticism of the new york times having Mm -hmm. competed against them for many years Uh, i give them an extra initial in their name the nyft Uh, and they were criticized for sitting on this or not getting it into the paper until after the election i don't know whether how much they knew about it in advance or whatever so i think part of it is the whole depletion of journalism this, this little tiny paper on the North Shore got, and it's a Republican leaning paper, got the story out. Uh, Newsday didn't get it out to the extent that Newsday has been capable of getting it out in the past. So, you know, I'm just happy that I wasn't there as the ombudsman. Years ago, they asked me to be the ombudsman at Newsday, which is a job where if you walk down the hallway and say good morning to somebody and you're the ombudsman, they say, what did he mean by that? Is he investigating me now? So I'd have... If I were the ombudsman, I'd have to be writing about this. What you know? What did newsday do wrong? What did newsday do right? And it would be making people throughout the building hate me. So I'm just happy not to be there for this. But the depletion of local journalism is something we all should be concerned about. And this may very well be a very good example of that. In fact,
0: the yeah. owner of that the owner or publisher of that paper, Bob, was was not just Republican leaning. He was the Republican nominee in that seat twice. Oh, yes, he was. <laughs> yeah, Lally. Um, yeah, I don't know
4: anyway, that and then, you know, TV, we we have our, we take the blame too. Um, the depletion of local journalism, maybe in the olden days, we would have had a reporter assigned to maybe each district or candidate. We did an overall Republican, an overall Democrat. We did, I did a certain race and it wasn't that race. Um, one of our city reporters did that race from a totally different um Standpoint that both men were gay, running um, against each other in newly, you know, designated. It was,
0: part of it's in Queens, so we connected it. To yeah, that and then
4: and, yeah, in Queens, and then and then Nassau. And what did all this mean? And did the Democrats blow it by um, it, causing this redistricting in the first place? And we sort of went from from that angle, and then talked to them. And of course, the next morning, I'm interviewing George Santos, and um, spoke to him quite a bit, you know, not necessarily, it was my second time around interviewing him after he lost to uh, to Tom Swazi two years prior. Um, I went over to Larry Levy at Hofstra that afternoon and he said, look, <laughs> there's so many things that we shouldn't do. Victim shaming when you didn't get what you wanted in hindsight to get but you in a race like this you just look at somebody's bio are you going to question he went to baruch college are you going to start calling baruch it just it it wasn't something that jumped out um until you know maybe if we'd interviewed him in person and and learned more about brazil and more about his finances but it didn't happen
0: yeah i wasn't looking for anybody to be any self-flagellation or it was more, did you think it's changed things? And I think you raised one example, maybe there will be a quick call to everybody's claimed college. Yep. And, and mm-hmm. having having gotten some higher education recently in my life, I would go with the last one they went to because that college did all the work for you on whether they went to the other colleges. <laughs> 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 right? yeah. Go to the highest one, they already got transcripts. anyway.
3: And I I would say, too, you know, it's one of these things and Jennifer touched on it. Do you start checking everyone's resume? I mean, I think the totality of the lies is what's so breathtaking. Because yes, someone might fudge this or fudge that. But when you fudge an entire life. You know, it's something do you think, wow, I need to check every fact on this, you know, was he the uh, descendants of Holocaust survivors was he Jewish was he, um, you know, how is he in Brazil was he black, you know, when you start adding things up and looking in the rearview mirror you say God how did we miss all these different warning uh, signs, and also there was always talk and this is and again self-flagellation shame on us there was always talk that there was something off about about him that things didn't add up I don't think we could understand the totality of how things didn't add up but yeah no maybe we should have checked further maybe we should have checked his business Um, and it's also going to be a story that's going to continue to go because now we have we have this morning's event and then you know there are going to be investigations into the financing
0: yeah there's a he was possibly also perhaps ignorable because he had lost by 40,000 votes in the previous election. Yeah. And you could
3: have the just, other,
5: you know,
2: right. Uh, the other interesting part of this is, you know, and I like Tom Suozzi. Uh, I think he's a good guy, but we wouldn't have George Santos if Tom Swazi had not decided to make this chimerical primary run for governor. Uh, he had lost a primary run for governor in the past. So, you know, people I know, tried to dissuade him from doing this. And so, you know, if he, if he beat Santos by that much, even in a re, redistricted district, the likelihood is he would have beaten him this time around and Santos would have continued to wallow in the obscurity that he so richly deserves. But the good thing that came out of all this is the uh, the Richie Torres uh, proposed legislation, uh, yeah. which I'm a big fan of uh, acronyms. So it's the non-truthful office seeker or right. Santos yes. <laughs> This came out of the GAO, the Government Acronym Office. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have these people coming 24 seven thinking of these acronyms. But I think that the end of it's gonna be when he and Bolsonaro both get uh, sent back to Brazil together. So, That's your prediction? Yeah.
5: Cool. <laughs> A package deal. Chris, yes. Mike. At, the, at the TV level, um, and Jen and I, I think probably uh, can uh, vouch for this. Um, there, there's such an emergence of so many platforms that we are dealing with now that, um, and so there are fewer, there are more jobs for fewer people, especially at, at, uh, in our business. And so the thought of doing some type of an investigative type uh, of piece for what seems to be almost like day of air type stuff. Is overwhelming, and I I I I do not want to make excuses, um, but I think I probably am. Uh, But it's so overwhelming the amount of work that reporters, MMJs, um, if you're familiar with the term MMJs, they do literally everything. Um, They're uh, multimedia journalists, Um, and then on our you know a a photographer, I'm shooting, editing, live. It's overwhelming the amount of stuff we're doing. So, um, you know, Jen was saying before, uh, yes, was something maybe off? Did something seem a little bit off? But were we supposed to be like, wait a minute, did you, are you sure you went to Baroque? You know, are you sure you went to this college? Are you sure, like it, yes, maybe in another time we might have, Um, but the amount of things that are on our plate um less than the possibility of digging that much on daily pieces um Bob you were talking earlier about uh you know um, if, if you had to deal with um, the uh, all the the live sh- stuff and all that I, I I do that to be able to do the projects you know I, I enjoy doing those extended project type pieces um but I but my job is also to do those the things that get things on the air on a daily basis. So I kind of always say throughout the years, uh, I do this stuff, the press conferences and the daily stuff or whatever, to be able to get into the other stuff and to be able to really dive in. But on a daily basis, stories like that, um, it's funny because I, I covered him. I covered both of them to the, the day of the election. and. Um, I got I got a, an interesting vibe um but I, it's not something I I delved in. I it was more of a coverage covering the day as opposed to second guessing every every single thing.
0: It's really the extent of it uh, one of our our participants commented that reminds him that, of that time that John Spano bought the Islanders hmm. <laughs> and and turned out he didn't you know didn't have money yeah. or didn't buy the Islanders. Um Another question came in, and uh, and it was it was for Jennifer. But maybe I'll ask, and this will be sort of our parting shot. Um, how, with all this going on, do you uh, does a journalist make time for the family and the things you might otherwise do during the day, the the personal things?
4: My date has changed um, because we no longer. I mean, those of us in the field, we don't really have producers assigned, like the Long Island producer. So we are the producers, and. My my workout schedule, for instance, has changed before I would do a run in the morning or a workout and then go to work. Well, now I'm up at the crack of dawn getting my story list together, making the calls. The hardest part for me is like 5:45 to 7:45, just to get all that in and get ready for our Zoom call. So my time for the family comes after work rather than before work. And fortunately the kids are in college and above. So um, but you know, for my husband, we always have dinner together every night and talk over our days and, you know, all of that. But it just you have to fudge things here and there and take advantage of weekends. Yeah.
3: And I would agree with, with Jennifer. My day has started earlier now. So that my read-in for the day is now, you know, six o'clock, five thirty in the morning. The other thing I have to do is at the end of the day. I have to create a boundary, whether I'm working at home or coming back in. It's like, no, the day is over. If, if there's something breaking, people know how to get a hold of me. But you know, I have to make an effort to step away from the computer and not answer emails.
0: Lower the lid on the laptop. That's how we all knew during the pandemic, the throws, it's still on, but that the, the work day was over, right? The lid is down.
5: Bob
4: <laughs> yeah, or Michael?
5: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Bob. Um, weekends are precious they you know my kids are still young they're in every sport imaginable um and so we we know during the week it's it's tough but i you know when i get home yeah we we get to do a few things and and they're in bed uh they're young um eight and eight and eleven but uh but the weekends are are very important
2: as a retired journalist i will say the one thing i don't miss is When I was the Albany Bureau Chief, and I would get a phone call at 12.15 in the morning saying, the New York Times is carrying a story saying that the governor is thinking of doing X. And I would say to the desk, yeah, and the governor is also thinking of doing Y and Z. And they're floating the story in the New York Times just to see which one you like. And they say, well, can you match it? At 12.15 at night, they said to me, can you match it? I can remember actually crying on one of those occasions. So (laughs) I don't miss that even a little tiny bit. Are
0: you suggesting that sometimes the uh, the, the second floor would would uh, put a story out to start a topic?
2: I, I know that because the guy used to be the secretary of the I know, governor. I, I had him to lunch one day, and he said the reason we tell the time stuff is because we know you guys will all follow them. So that's why I give them that middle initial N Y F T.
0: So, sometimes it was a person with a, with the same name as one of our panelists. Yeah. Um.
2: <laughs> yes, Michael Del Judas. One of my favorite uh, rhymes in the LCA show. Uh, Bob Delgado who was the former secretary to the governor was a nasty character in many ways uh, and he was he in the song was we are teaching Del Judas to screw those who screwed us and he'll carry on when I'm gone so <laughs> That's one of my terrible. favorite lines from the LCA show
5: sorry Michael no love it
0: well I want to thank everybody with, with that I think we're at the we're at time It's it's a, it's a wrap with this with this uh, this team, I, I I enjoyed it greatly. I, I I like doing this. It's not my business. It's not my day job, or even my my hobby. I just I love the interaction, and I think uh, I, I I took copious notes that I'll that I'll use to follow up. And uh, I appreciate Bob and, and, and Michael and Jennifer and, and and Terry for for joining us and, and sharing sharing your stories. Uh, they all resonated. You know, it, it, you sometimes forget that some of those stories were Long Island based, and and uh, you were all live on the scene or shortly thereafter, uh, making it real for the rest of the public. So I appreciate that and your time this morning. The Fair Media Council is a 501c3 nonprofit organization
5: advocating for quality news and working to create a media savvy society. For more information about the Fair Media Council and upcoming fast chat shows, check out fairmediacouncil.org.